There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 28th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A 44-year-old man died in hospital last night. Marius Joa Danis had been on life support for more than three weeks and Gardi now say that they believe Marius was murdered. Details about how Marius was killed are scant at the moment, but we do know that he was found in a critical condition at his home on Barrack Street and Dundalk. Reports suggest he was attacked by someone with an axe and that a blow to his head with that axe may have proved fatal. Gardy tell us uh, that they were called to an incident in Barrack Street on the 5th of July. That's Tuesday three weeks ago. They say Mr. Juan Danis had suffered serious injuries and he was rushed to our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda. From there he was transferred to Beaumont where he was placed on life support. Last night Marius Juan Danis lost his battle for his life and he was pronounced dead in hospital. Now Guardi are appealing to anyone with information about what happened or what led to an attack on Mr. Jew and Danis just over three weeks ago in Dundalk to come forward. An incident room has been put in place where a murder investigation has now commenced in Dundalk. A family liaison officer is in place to keep the family informed of developments and Guardi appeal to anyone who was in the vicinity of Barrack Street between half six and seven o'clock on Tuesday evening, the 5th of July, to come forward. If you were travelling in that area and you have a camera, including dash cam footage, they say, please make that footage available to the guards. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There is no doubt that Mr. Dewan Dana suffered a very serious attack and Gardaí will want to get to the bottom of this. Absolutely. Well, look, this is a a very tragic case and and obviously very tragic for his family. Um, As you've said, he was found a number of weeks ago and it's only in the last 24 hours that Mr. Joan Danis has passed away. So, Gardy, really um, 
are appealing and asking, and in particular those who are listening to your show who, who are from this area, if you're in the area at the time, if you know the person uh, or knew the person, if you were in your car driving, a- anything that you think might be helpful. And, and I've often said this to you, no matter how small you might think it is or how insignificant it might be, hugely significant in trying to bring whoever is responsible for this to justice. So again, I would reiterate your pleas and that of the Gardaí for people to please come forward. Obviously, there's a family here as well and, and the Gardaí are engaging with them. Um, but it's important that we find out who, who has done this to, to Marius. Okay. And we'll hear more about this story undoubtedly in uh, the coming hours, if not days. Uh, thank you, as I say, Minister, for joining us uh, this morning. Um, you've a busy end of term as government last cabinet uh, meeting of the year yesterday. And you brought forward uh, some uh, amendments uh, to legislation and a change in the law which will strengthen the law in reference uh, to whether somebody has given consent or not uh, when there's an allegation of rape against somebody else. Explain what's envisaged through this amendment. Well, what I brought forward yesterday and and which was approved by government are a number of changes uh, and we've been working on these for some time now. You might remember when I first came into the department, we published a plan called Supporting a Victim's Journey and the whole intention of this plan and the, the changes that we're to bring about is to improve the criminal justice system for victims of rape and sexual assault and more importantly to encourage people to come forward. There were a number of key recommendations and this is how we've gotten to this point now. So the first on consent, um, at the moment we have a situation where if somebody is accused of rape, there is a defence whereby they can say, well, I had an honest belief, so a subjective view, so it's their thought or their feeling that the person at the time was consenting. They don't have to show or go to any lengths to try and show or prove to a jury that they took the relevant steps necessary that a a normal person would believe that person to have consented. Um, What we are changing now is that if you are accused of rape, that you will have to prove or to try and prove that you took the relevant steps that a person would know that they were consenting. So, you know, that you had a conversation, that you, you asked the person, that it was indicated that you were going to have sex, um, or that, you know, very clearly if somebody is in a state where they can't consent, where they can't speak, where they're drunk, where something has happened to them, um, then that can then be taken into account. Whereas now it is very much possible for a person to say, well, I was of the view and I believe that that person was consenting without having to actually show that relevant steps were taken. Mm. Now, obviously, as is the case with any trial, there will have to be, you know, other evidence. There will have to be, obviously, um, you know, the scaling of events and what happened and everything else, and it would be up to a jury to decide. But I think this is an important change. Uh, It does raise the bar slightly where somebody has been accused, but it really brings us back to the very basics. If you are engaging in a sexual relationship with someone, there should never be any question or any doubt that both parties are consenting to the act that's about to take place. Um, and it's not to try and catch people out or where people are, you know, and you know, meeting a night out or where something happens and, and follows suit. Mm-hmm. This is very serious where another person does not consent. Uh, and I think it's, it's important that we bring about that change. And indeed, survivor groups and, and representative, representative groups have called for this for many years. Um, there were a number of other changes, maybe if I could, just mm-hmm. as part of this, as I said, this is, this is about encouraging people to come forward. We will extend the anonymity for victims and those who are accused, not just for rape trials, but also to sexual assault trials. So at the moment, a victim of rape uh, and the accused 
has the right to anonymity during the trial. We are extending that to sexual assault cases because I believe, and I think others too, that people are not coming forward because they don't want their name put out there. They're embarrassed. They, they feel ashamed. They don't want their name put in the paper or people talking about them. So that will be removed. And obviously, if a person is found guilty, there will very much be an opportunity or a right for somebody to waive their anonymity or for somebody to be, to be named. It will also prevent the public from coming into the court. And again, I think this is something that might perhaps prevent people from coming forward if they think that somebody can walk into a court and watch and see what's happening, um, which is a very difficult situation for someone to find themselves in. As well as that, then we are extending uh, legal aid to somebody who uh, is going through a sexual offence case where, again, that is provided in rape trials where they can have separate legal representation. It doesn't apply for sexual assault cases. So all of these changes are intended to encourage people to come forward who are victims and really to show them that the support and the help is there and that we are thinking of them and trying to make what is a very difficult situation in a court setting some little bit easier for them. And is it that there will be no public gallery in all sexual assault cases? Yes, that is the case. Um, And that is constitutional, Minister, is it uh, because uh, you're... Uh, I mean, it should be a a trial in front of your peers. I take it that your peers will be the jury if it is constitutional. Absolutely. So you will still have a jury of peers and there will still be reporting. So it is important that these cases are reported on, that they're obviously done in a sensitive way. But the anonymity of a victim must be protected if they do not want their name to be put out there. But obviously the details of the case um, and then subsequently if somebody is found guilty, that that person can decide whether or not they would like to waive that anonymity. It's also really important if we look at it from the other perspective. We have had cases where individuals have been accused of rape and they have been acquitted. They have been found not guilty, but their name has been put out there. And we know that that can have devastating consequences as well. So it's just, it's important that we allow people to come forward and to be comfortable in actually taking a case and to be able to discuss what happened to them but also that we do have that reporting and that I think is very important for for each and every one of us to see how the courts are working and to see what is happening. Um, There is an element of it where you cannot do, that this will apply to social media and we wanted to make sure that that is the case because of a lot of our old laws, they apply to print media and to radio, but this will will extend to social media as well. Okay, and uh, when it comes to consent, I mean, to give uh, one extreme example, a uh, man attacks a, a woman and rapes her down a, a dark lane, uh, obviously hadn't sought or, or uh, received consent. Uh, but a, another extreme example, uh, two uh, people uh, behind a closed door I- in a bedroom, a uh, charge of rape is brought against one of them who says uh, there was consent, the other says there wasn't. Uh, what do you do in a circumstance like that? Well, again, this is very much depending on the situation. So as is the case with any court case or any trial, a jury will have to hear what happened before the incident, before they you know, arrived at the destination, before the incident took place, uh, were there any witnesses, all of the different factors. So it, it's very difficult to pinpoint what may or may not happen in that type of a scenario. But there might be different types of evidence that would lead to a conclusion or there might be a way in which the accused could very clearly show in some way that there had been an instigation and that had been followed through or not. So again, Mm. it it very much depends on the facts and the evidence. But at the moment, there is absolutely no requirement for somebody to show in any way that they took the relevant steps 
to, to know that that person was consenting. You know, you often have a situation, uh, and we've probably all heard of, of, of awful trials where a person was so intoxicated that there's no there's no possible way that they could have consented or that they were asleep and that they were assaulted in their sleep. Um, another change uh, that we are bringing forward that really is, is already happening but that we are solidifying in law is that being drunk will never be a defence. So it's not black and white in law at the moment um, and it is not generally used or accepted but we are making it absolutely clear just because you are drunk it does not mean that that can be a defence when you are accused of rape okay. um, because I, I think it's, it's important that we make that clear that alcohol should never be a factor when it comes to deciding something like this unless the victim themselves was in the situation as I've said where they clearly could not consent um, so it, it's, a, it's a complex mm. space absolutely and, and I appreciate that but it really if we take it back to the very sure. basics yeah. it is what is a consensual relationship how do we make sure that no matter what happens it's very clear and there's never any ambiguity that both people in the the moment are consenting to what is happening. Okay. Uh, your bill also hopes uh, to uh, give greater protection uh, to victims of human trafficking. Uh, a lot of us uh, were taken uh, aback uh, by the reports uh, this week of uh, a 17-year-old vulnerable girl possibly trafficked into the country from Ukraine. Uh, you're going to uh, hopefully see more people identified as a result of changes. Well, what this bill does is put an illegal footing, a new structure that we're putting in place. So up until recently, the only relevant authorities that could legally identify and then follow through and support victims of trafficking were on Garda Shiakana. Um, now, we know a lot of people who perhaps have been trafficked into this country, and unfortunately there are many people. They come from countries where the Garda are not people that they would support or help. So while the guards here, I believe, are doing excellent work, they're not necessarily the first port of call that a person would go to for help. So we are expanding out to include other types of services. So there will be community and voluntary organisations who will be working with us and who will be a dedicated agency for this purpose, but also the likes of TUSLA, the HSC, our medical professionals and others. So it's about creating a network of people who will be able to identify first and foremost and to work with different sectors, but also when somebody comes forward that they can then help and obviously engage with the Gardaí because this is a very, very serious crime. Uh, the case that you mentioned, obviously, TUSLA have been involved and would have reported and engaged, but it just means that we will have a wider and a more, I think, comprehensive structure to be able to support uh, and to help people. So yesterday's um, agreement from government allows us to put this on a legal footing and a statutory basis and it's something that was welcomed recently by uh, our American colleagues who um, essentially grade different countries as to how we are doing when it comes to human trafficking. And this was really an important step for us for us to take in that regard. OK. Minister, to a local issue and the ongoing uh, debate about uh, the closure of uh, the emergency department in our ladies' hospital in Navan. Uh, the minister says he's asked the HSE to instigate a review into the situation. The HSE said it would commence that review this week. Uh, That's uh, the beginning and the end of the story as far as we've been able to establish. Do you know any more about this? Well, look, that is basically where we are and I had only spoken to the Minister about it this week. So prior to this week, there's been extensive engagement between the Department of Health and the HSE. There were terms of reference agreed and this review, which I'm informed, will take... I'd say a maximum of eight weeks. So when we return in the autumn, so into our new September term, 
we will hopefully have this report and be able to meet and obviously bring together the, the clinicians with uh, the Department of Health. It will look at patient access considerations when we look at NAV and Drahada, and it will also include Connolly, taking into to consideration the fact that those will, many will go to Connolly as well, or some will. Uh, it will look at our ambulance services and more. So, you know, this, this is basically looking at what is the capacity currently in the system for accidents and emergency for this county and surrounding areas. What does it need to be? What would be required? Looking down the line for potential changes if they were to happen. And, you know, this is about, you know, every, I, I take it back to what we've talked about so many times, planning capacity. What resources do we need? How do we create the best health care absolutely everybody involved here yeah. and I hope once we have this report we can sit down we can go through all of this and then obviously we, 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 make, we make a decision and we move from there you've seen the terms of reference information to inform us yes you've seen the terms of reference Minister yes yes yeah. uh, and, they, and they are essentially as I've said out mm. it is looking at um, access to accident and emergency within the county and surrounding areas taking into account Navan, Drogheda and Connolly. It's looking at capacity within our ambulance service and looking at other supports. So obviously looking at our GP services as well, not just during the day, but out of hours. So they are the critical elements of all of what we have discussed for, for many, many, okay. many years. Will they be what published? The capacity? Um, I, I have no intention or I have no... I. I I'm not aware that it won't be, so mm. I have no doubt that it, that it can be published and mm. I think it should be to show exactly what it is that we have, what capacity is needed and where we go from here. Uh, do we know who will carry out the review? So this will be done between the Department of Health and the HSE and that is why we've had extensive engagement between those two up until now and then obviously that work will be carried out over the next six to eight weeks, I think maximum eight weeks. By civil servants, um, by medics, by both. Uh, do we know names of individuals? Uh, I mean, people I, I, are very I, I, anxious I, for information, Minister. I, I, I don't have that information, um, but it will be both. We do have to make sure that when information is gathered, that it's gathered from our clinicians within our hospitals and obviously then looking at the overall framework. So that will require people from within the HSE, people working on the ground, as well as those in the Department of Health. So it will be quite a broad involvement and engagement. Um, and the, the most important thing is that we get, we get engagement with everybody that's going to be impacted by any potential changes here. It's the most important thing that everybody's voice is heard, everybody's okay. medical view is taken on board. That's the most important thing, not ours. Mm. But the medical okay. opinions are taken on board. So I, I have no doubt when we return um, in terms of the doll mm. in September that we will have this report and we will be able to, to engage further on it. Okay, and you would like uh, the terms of reference published? I, I, I have no... Um, I have no problem with them being published. So again, that's something I can engage with the, the Minister for Health on, yes. Okay, um, let's uh, briefly talk about uh, emissions. Uh, the Cabinet meeting concluded yesterday with uh, without an agreement on agriculture. Uh, the talks went on last night. Uh, they continue today. Uh, they say there's hope uh, of uh, finding an agreement. Uh, do you believe that to be the case? Uh, I, I believe it can happen today in saying that you know, it may not, and I think we need to to obviously focus on making sure that we get the right outcome here. I've always said that. It is important that we do this as quickly as possible because we are talking about trying to set targets to reduce our overall emissions, but we need to get it right. And I appreciate a lot of discussion has happened and the focus now is on agriculture, and it is really important that whatever is agreed, that it's realistic, that it's achievable, and that we work with 
our farming community and so many people who listen to your show are from farming communities and farming backgrounds uh, and I think we have a very proud history and tradition and more recently world renowned for the way in which we produce our food in a green and sustainable way so it's, it's about bringing all of that uh, as well as trying to be as ambitious mm. as we possibly can be okay, so, so, you know, we're, so we're, we're, we're getting there and I think the discussions so, will continue today and hopefully that hopefully we can reach an agreement Okay, today. if, if uh, 26% is as far as the Greens will go, uh, could that uh, be problematic for the coalition? Well, look, I, I don't want to get into figures because okay. that's obviously be, being discussed. Yes. But I, I really, I, I don't think anybody should be getting into a space of um, whether or not, you know, gov- government yeah. and not supporting government. We have so much going on at the moment okay. on, a, on okay. a national basis yeah. and a worldwide yeah. basis. Yeah. 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 So my, my own view and my own um, feedback is that we're not we're not talking about that. We're really focused on what what we do to try and reach an agreement here and I believe that we will and I believe that we, we can. Okay, um, just very briefly, uh, the sentence of Garda Paul Moody has uh, led to a, a lot of uh, public commentary. Uh, there's a letter to the Irish Times today by a former member of your party, indeed, uh, one of your predecessors, a uh, former Minister for Justice, Alan Shatter, who writes uh, about uh, the sentence uh, and how other serious charges against Moody were dropped. And he says, the circumstances compelled the trial judge to reduce the five-year maximum sentence that could be imposed to three years and three months, which in practical terms will be reduced, uh, further reduced, uh, should Moody uh, be of good behaviour while serving his sentence. And he makes two points uh, in his letter, uh, one is that reforming legislation is urgently required and also that such conduct by a serving Garda uh, should be treated with additional severity due to the gross breach of public trust. Would you agree with either or both of those points? Well, I, I would agree with both in that his second point, I think that's what probably has shocked and upset so many people is that this is a person who was in a position of such power uh, and this is what was hugely um, upsetting but I can only imagine for the victim here, we know her name is Nicola for her to come forward knowing the position that he was in or for her to you know, to, to go through this trial can only have been hugely difficult and, and traumatic for her um, there have been changes in recent times in Angarda Siakana this is an area that the current commissioner has prioritised and there are new structures in place where we have an anti-corruption unit which doesn't just look at corruption as people might think of it in the traditional sense, but it looks within the force and have tried to identify, and they have through this new structure identified individuals working in Garda Siakana uh, who themselves are perpetrators of domestic violence or coercive control or have used their position to identify vulnerable people. So there's a huge amount of work underway to try and strengthen those structures um, and, and make sure that these type of people are rooted out of Angarda Siakana. Uh, in terms of the sentencing, I am never going to um, I'm never going to say that we shouldn't review or consider changes to legislation. Uh, and the case in point yesterday, I got approval for something that we discussed only a few weeks ago, where I will increase the maximum sentence for assault causing harm from five years to 10 years. And I'm doing that because I believe there have been many, many cases and many comments from judges saying that they could only apply a maximum sentence of five years in what were serious cases. The particular charge that was brought to uh, this gentleman or this man was coercive control. It was only introduced in the last three and a half years by my my colleague Charlie 
uh, Flanagan and David Stanton. Um, it is a relatively new charge. There have been about 55 cases brought and just over 20 convictions. But I think we need to be able to look at this legislation as a whole. We need to have time to review it, see how it's working, see how it's not. But I am certainly not adverse to increasing or changing sentences if that is what we need to do. Um, but this is a relatively new law. In terms of why course of control was brought, it is very much a matter for the DPP, for the Gardaí, to decide what charges, what crimes they, they press and what they bring. And obviously a decision was taken here, I think, because of the fact that this woman is ill, because of the fact that there was a guilty plea and they wanted to make sure that this person was put behind bars and that he was no longer a danger to her or indeed to, to anybody else in our society. Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on the programme uh, this morning. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, Finnegale TD for Meath East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the CSO said yesterday that when you compare the Consumer Price Index, uh, the inflation figure for June uh, of uh, this year at 9.1% uh, with what's happening otherwise, uh, there's some stark differences. Uh, they say they've a new breakdown uh, from uh, the CSO estimating that households with the lowest incomes experienced higher inflation, up to 10.3% compared to that figure of 9.1%. Uh, and to those in the highest income category had annual estimated inflation of 8.2%, far lower than the 9.1%. Now, one family uh, represents many of those who are experiencing that higher rate of inflation at 10.3% and it's calling on the government to to support low-income families in the upcoming budget. Let's speak to Neve Kelly, who's the policy manager for One Family, the National Organisation for One Parent Families. Good morning, Neve. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Why do you think there is such a a stark difference between the increases in the cost of living that people are, are seeing? It seems the poorer you are, the poorer you're becoming. Yeah, well, I think it goes to the types of products that, that people who are on low incomes are, are purchasing. Um, we know that the greatest amount of inflation is seen in things like food, for example, is, is a really big one. And, and a greater proportion of families in poverty, a great, greater proportion of their budget is spent on things that are, are rising at a higher rate. So that's why we see these dif- differential um, inflation rates. Um, and what we're really concerned at is obviously the pace of inflation is going at such an extent that, you know, even in terms of making our recommendations for the budget, you know, as months go on, they're, they're, the, the rate is so fast that it's very hard to keep up with. So we really need the government to step up in this budget and take a, I suppose, a big step forward for these families, particularly those on social protection, and make sure that they're insulated not against inflation. They won't be protected from inflation, but we are asking the government to, to invest so that they can keep a pace with inflation. And that's really all they'll be able to do this year. Mm. Um, so it's not even about, you know, reducing poverty. It's yeah. really about just keeping people standing still. Uh, and uh, achieving that uh, would uh, be a tall task uh, if it was uh, possible across uh, the board. The government ha- has rejected the idea of an emergency budget, as we know, and has said that it's going to take time to step back so that it can uh, introduce targeted measures. If one-parent families are, are to uh, be a part of that, uh, how would the government go about targeting uh, the people you represent in a a positive way? 
Well, there's a number of measures that we're calling for in, in our pre-budget submission. And I suppose the first is just to increase core social welfare rates by €20 Euros per week. And the, the evidence suggests that, as I say, this will keep people at the same level they're at now. Alongside that, we would like to see then some further targeting of measures for one-parent families. So, for example, there's a payment, the increase, uh, the increase for a qualified child, which is a payment that all, all um, recipients of social welfare who have children get for, for their child. And there's a different rate for teenagers and acknowledging that they, they cost more. Um, so we'd like to see that increased this year. It was increased last year and it made a huge impact for families. Um, we'd also like to see things like, um, at the moment, uh, single adult households can receive benefits such as the living loan allowance, the telephone allowance, household benefits package. But one parent families can't receive that despite the fact that they are essentially a single adult earner um, with children. So we'd like to see one parent families who are in receipt of fuel allowance getting those entitlements. So that would just really help them with that cost bit, you know, for things like their telephone bill. Um, we'd also like to see some movement on child maintenance. We've been calling for this for, for many years. Um, in the last year, there has been a review, there was a review group set up to look at this issue, but they haven't published, um, or the department hasn't as yet published the, the report from that group. But what we've always said is that child maintenance payments should be viewed in the same way as child benefit is, as a non-means-tested, non-taxed payment for the child. Um, currently, parents who receive child maintenance for their child, that maintenance payment is means-tested at a number of different entry points into the system. So, for example, if you're going for housing support, it's means-tested, or if you're going for a social welfare payment, it's means-tested. So it can be means-tested multiple times, which means the value of that payment for the child is eaten away and eroded. And that's a real child poverty um, issue that we see uh, for, for those families. Okay. So, mm. uh, specific measures. I, I take it energy is uh, the big concern uh, because uh, it's going to increase on, on uh, the huge increases that we've already seen. And uh, the CSO is saying that the proportion of spending on electricity, gas and other fuels is higher amongst households with lower gross household income. Uh, and interesting uh, as well, uh, just to put uh, inflation into context, uh, between June of 2017 and 2022, uh, over that five-year period, inflation increased by 12%, uh, but by just 2.7% uh, in the first four years. Most of it has come in the last year, an increase of 9.1%. Uh, the, the, the rate that prices are increasing is a, a, another factor that... Uh, must be a huge concern for everybody. Absolutely, and that's something you know we've we've asked for an increase in the um, payable period for fuel allowance to expand it to thirty two weeks. That would give four additional weeks for families in receipt of it. But also important to note there was, you know, ESRI research came out earlier this year that was really um, showing um, in response to last year's budget that um, the working family payment recipients of that payment were much worse off after last year's budget. And the reason for that is that they don't receive, they're not eligible for the fuel allowance. So we'd like to see those families um, have access to the fuel allowance as well because that will make a massive difference for them. As you say, that's such a a huge expenditure. And we're seeing on the ground, you know, with fairly regularly now and commonly, families are 
choosing between the discretionary payments that they have left. And that mm. really comes down to fuel or food. Yep. They can either afford to keep the house or they can afford to buy, put food on the table mm. because they and can't. The major retailers, the major retailers are, are saying that and they're reporting uh, that uh, people are, are demanding own brand products uh, and indeed Cantar, which uh, observes uh, the supermarket uh, trade saying that take-home grocery sales have slumped by over 3% in uh, the last 12 weeks. Yeah, I mean, I had a parent tell me recently that, the, you know, she only buys from the expired food aisle in the shop, you know, for that, that section that's selling food that's just passed or just about to go out of date. So, you know, families... I suppose are tightening their belts and we see it across the board and one parent families are particularly vulnerable to that because they tend to have one income but who we're really concerned about are the families that you know we're aware of through our work that are already in poverty so they've already been making these difficult choices for a long time and they don't have any more room to to, to to tighten the belt, if you will. Okay. So they're the families that we really want to see supported this year. And if we had one core message for the government this year, it would be to focus their cost of living measures on the most vulnerable. Okay. Um, Neve, you know, I'm sorry, we have to leave it there. We're over time, but thank you indeed. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Neve Kelly, who's uh, the policy manager for One Family. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a headline in the Irish Independent today that really catches your eye. It says, I stood on the road outside my house with a speed gun and here's what happened. It's an article that's written by Mary McCarthy. A speed gun and a green loud hailer, it seems, for that matter. Let's speak to Mary McCarthy, who's a columnist with the Irish Independent. Good morning to you, Mary, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You bought both of these tools online and you stood outside your house with your kids as a a geography project you said or just something to do during lockdown because you bought this uh, in May of last year wasn't it? Hi Michael how are you? Yes we did we we bought it in May of last year because we were uh, outstanding that the cars were flying up and down and we'd been in touch with the council to put speed bumps in and there was a bit of to and froing and they did send someone out to check the uh, the speed and they claimed that it was under 30. But they did, what they did in the end was they put, they painted 30 on the road at each entrance to the road. Um, but anyway, we, we we were kind of surprised that cars are going so quickly. So we wanted to kind of have, you know, the evidence that they were going over 30. So we bought this speed gun online, very easy to buy and uh, $129. Um, and we did find that most cars went over 30. Um, and then we later supplemented it with the green uh, loudspeaker because, well, well, basically, if you stand outside, Michael, with a speed gun, like the cars, if they see you, they slow down mm-hmm. uh, immediately. If they don't see you, they keep going, you know, when you get it. But uh, I find that if I, I know I sound like a bit of a weirdo here, but if I stay inside, like so upstairs from my bedroom window and I can get the cars, I, that's the more accurate one because they can't see me with the right, speed camera yeah, so they yeah, don't yeah, slide yeah, down. Yeah. 
Uh, and when, the road, when they see yeah. you, uh, you, you shout out at them, I take it through the loud hailer. Uh, and you're saying that there's an awful lot of cars uh, on the roads. I liked your article uh, because you made some very interesting points. Uh, one was that a little bit like uh, getting to the top of the mountain, you have to climb the mountain first of all. You say we need another cultural shift, uh, which is to accept that there's a lot of cars on the road and we have to accept that it takes time to get from A to B. But you're, you, you don't come across as a fuddy-duddy because you say in your article as well, that sometimes you drive over the speed limits yourself. Oh, listen, Michael, this is it. You know, I think it's kind of ingrained in us that we expect to get places faster. But, you know, actually, when you look at the figures, it's amazing. There's, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, there was less than a million uh, vehicles on the road. And now we've got 2.8 million. So, but we still expect to get there just as fast. Um, But I am no street angel. I will... You know, I find myself on my, I hate myself for doing it, Michael, but I'm on my phone in the car. What I do is I come down to the, I stop at the traffic lights and I'll get the phone out quickly to check, you know, if I'm going to see my mom, does she want anything or whatever. Mm. And, you know, when you're sitting in the traffic lights and that car in front of you uh, doesn't see the, the lights go green, yep. like they are on their phone. And mm. I, I have been that person. And I know, like, intrinsically, how distracting the phone is. And I, I think, like, a lot of things have changed since when I was growing up as a kid. Number one, we have phones now. Number two, there's nearly three times as many vehicles on the road. And number three, we have emissions now. Uh, climate change, we didn't have that when I was growing up. So I think we really need... I think you're right with that analogy there about climbing the mountain. It's something that we have to sit down and think about. Like, is it going to... Do We, we just mm. need to accept, OK, it's going to take us longer... And maybe we should make that sacrifice and get the bus, get the train and realise and accept it's going to take us longer. And I think once people make that acceptance, just like we did with drink drink driving, as you say, Mm -hmm. that you can't do it, it's socially unacceptable, that maybe people might think, well, look, if I can't get up to, you know, Dundrum in 20 minutes as I'm used to, maybe I'll just take the Lewis or take the bus. Mm -hmm. That takes, you know, maybe yeah. 30 minutes. And you put your hands up and you say, well, I might have gone through when it was orange, maybe red. Uh, but I wouldn't do that yeah. in London because they've got cameras uh, on the traffic lights in London and you're saying uh, that would suit you because it would <laughs> put manners on you, if you like. Oh, listen, uh, And right. t- t- tell me about France. Uh, would you be speeding to, to catch the lights if you were in France? Um, do you know what? I'm not sure if they have the cameras in France, but what they do is, uh, if you guess, because my... Uh, my Your in-laws live there, so mm-hmm. we were just mm-hmm. down there staying with them in Montpellier. And my father-in-law, he kind of gave me this idea because he was like, there is, if you get caught speeding with your, uh, you get three points on your licence, but you also get invited to do this course, a re-education course. And if you do the course, you can scrub off the three points, but you can only do that up to four points. So if you're a serial offender, like, you know, yeah. you have to do the course. Like there's some kind of, if you go over a certain amount of points, you have to do the course but anyway, he did the course and he said it was life-changing because what they do is they really drum into you. The speed affects everything because if you hit someone and you're at 30, you will, you know, you might injure them. If you're at 40, you will likely kill them. You know, the way it makes such a difference. Yeah. And it really struck me because I was like, gosh, you know, I want my kids to, like, like I did, I roamed the neighbourhood. I just want to send them out. Mm. Just to go go off, call for your friends, do this, cycle up to your gymnastics, cycle to your football. 
but inside I feel I feel worried, you know, because mm. I can see the cars flying up and down, and I know I fly up and down, Michael. Mm. I don't want to be saying, "Listen, I'm I'm the, I'm an angel here. I'm not." So I kind of feel it's something we really need to talk about. I was I, I was kind of thinking maybe along with the traffic lights, with the cameras and the traffic lights. Because if you, because if you're in London and you you fly through the lights to make it, Michael, you pay mm. fifty pounds. You're, they take your registration number and they send you the note. Uh, you know, get the letter in the post the next day, fifty quid, please. So that's going to stop me. I tell you, like a quick smart, yeah, that'll yeah, stop me. Yeah. That'll stop everyone. Uh, you know. Uh, and if. Uh someone is knocked down this weekend, uh, you make the point that the first question they'll ask in the hospital is what speed was the driver going at uh, because uh, they have some idea of the internal injuries uh, as a result of that. Now, I think that probably uh, brings us to the thrust of of, uh, the message you're trying to get across in your article uh, going into the bank holiday weekend. Oh, that's it. I mean, like, I was just, I felt just, with the June bank holiday, I think was it eight people that were killed. I mean, it's just so sad. I think it puts a dampener on all our holidays when we see these headlines spring up. And the fact that we're going into another headline now, another bank holiday weekend, and you know the headlines are going to be there. And I just kind of feel there is no need for it. We could, if we really, if everyone was really deliberate and thought about when they set off at driving. And also, you know, I think people driving when they're upset and like, well, like during the pandemic, the cars were flying and I reckon it was, I don't know, I have no proof obviously, but I think people were upset and stressed and I think that's kind of why they were. And now I think people are also still like kind of upset with the cost of living and everything. And you can feel the impatience. Like I, I would cycle half the time. I cycle on my own. Anytime I'm going somewhere on my own, I cycle um, and I dro- drop the kids the other half. Well, I try and get them to cycle as well, but it's, you know, it's kind of tricky with the roads. But I do think the roads have gotten a lot safer, Michael, but... At the same time, there's too many cars on the roads. Like in Dublin city centre, we've the same amount of roads as we have, you know, and now we've got three times as many cars. So there's yeah. an impatience there that we need Absolutely. to address. Yeah, yeah. and let's, let's share the road safely. Uh, you've given yeah. us all some food for thought. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, as well this morning. On, Thank you indeed. Mary McCarthy, columnist with the Irish Independent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Crime Victims Helpline uh, provides extensive information about coping with different types of crime, such as cyber crime, assault, and harassment. It also provides information about the criminal justice system, victims' rights, and has a searchable database of victim support services in Ireland and offers support to victims of all crimes in this country. It's been in operation since 2005. Its executive director is Michelle Puckapper, who joins us now. And uh, a very good morning, Michelle, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You've uh, published your annual report and uh, an awful lot of contacts, almost 5,000 people in touch, 4,967 contacts over the course of uh, the... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Last year, and I think COVID was something that was feeding into the things that people were saying to you. And indeed, you've seen a 102% increase in referrals to mental health services as a result of COVID. Good morning, Michael. You know, what we are seeing is you know a real trend. So the the, the Crime Victims Helpline, the one one six zero zero six, we provide emotional support, information about the criminal justice system, and then we signpost people to other resources and supports um, that that can that can help them. And so in twenty, you know, we saw a similar number of contacts to the helpline um, across twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. You know, even though crime rates were down due to the COVID, but what we saw is that the calls, the, you know, the reasons why people were, were ringing us, it was more for emotional support um, rather than the information piece of what we do. Their calls got longer. People were more traumatized. So what we were really, you know, seeing um, is that that impact, that that ripple effect that the, you know, COVID and the pandemic and just all the stress associated with that you had on people because you add on, you know, a, a being becoming a victim of a crime or, you know, dealing with trauma, you know, that just can really push people to a breaking point or, where, or a point where they need just extra support and extra help in in recovering after a crime. Yeah, I think uh, we've uh, had a, a conversation every year over the last uh, 17 years or, or so, uh, for that matter, Michelle, and we've often spoken about how it can impact psychologically uh, on somebody. Anybody who's had their house broken into at night will know what it feels like when they hear a bump in the night. Uh, and I, I suppose this is the type of impact we're talking about here. And uh, the fact that because of lockdowns and so on, there hasn't been the opportunity to share that with other people and you feel all the more isolated and all the more vulnerable vulnerable as a result. I think absolutely. Uh, the the impact can be seen, um, you know, across the board. And I think as well, what we're seeing now, we're kind of coming out of the pandemic. And I think that there's almost this push to be like, okay, we're normal, everything's fine. And it's not, you know, there will be, um, uh, you know, ongoing you know, supports that people need just to kind of, you know, heal from the trauma of the last couple of years. And as always with crime, even the kind of the crimes that we hear about more often, and we almost kind of forget that the people behind them, you know, harassment, criminal damage, theft, you know, you hear somebody's home got broken into, you think, oh, that's, mm. you know, terrible. But, but I think sometimes you forget that 
the real impact of those crimes, just because they can be fairly common, doesn't mean that it doesn't you know, harm people, doesn't mean it's not traumatic. You know, and even sometimes with figures, it kind of, you know, it, it, it hides the people behind the numbers. So, you know, I was just looking for Lao and me, you know, about 10 percent um, of our contacts were from Lao and me. And that's, you know, it's two, you know, over 200 people who have been impacted by crime and were reaching out for support. Mm. Yeah, and you you hear uh, from uh, people who have suffered from all sorts of crimes, 28 different types of, of crimes uh, over the course of uh, the last year. Coercive control, obviously, uh, very prominent in uh, the news uh, this week. We hear there's a, a lot of it, and you've been hearing from people who have uh, been uh, suffering uh, at the hands of somebody else uh, who's been trying to control them like that. That's right. So... Um, coercive control is a new crime, so it's something that we're just newly uh, tracking in terms of our statistics. Um, now, we would hear from a lot of people who have been impacted by domestic violence-related crimes because those can be a really wide range of things such as theft, assault, harassment, criminal damage. Um, but so, you know, what we're newly being able to track is this coercive control. So I think that it will be very interesting to see, you know, moving forward, um, if we hear from people, you know, that have been impacted by coercive control, if our numbers increase, um, because I think one thing with it being in the news so much, um, I mean, the hope is that people will be more aware of the tactics of power and control that um, abusive partners use. And maybe we'll be more up to, to reach out and be like, you know, this is how I'm being treated and this isn't okay and, and there is help and there is support available. Okay, well, the Crime Victims Headline is 116006 and we'll repeat that in a moment. You can offer emotional support to people if uh, they have fallen victim to a, a crime, but uh, there's a, a lot more you do other than emotional support, which in itself is very important. You can help people uh, make their way through the criminal justice system. That's right. We help people navigate um, a system that m- m- for most people, when they become a victim, it's the first time they're kind of encountering a GARDA investigation, um, decisions about whether or not um, their case is prosecuted, the court system. So we're really here to answer questions about the criminal justice process. And then again, signpost people to other supports that can really um, advocate for them and be a source of um, support as they go through the process. And that can be you know, highly specialized supports around domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, homicide, road traffic incidents. Um, so there's a lot of really good organizations in Ireland doing very good work that can really help people. And we do try to connect them with those services. Okay, well, 116006 is uh, the National Crime Victims Helpline. Uh, You can also uh, make contact uh, with uh, the service by texting if you would like to do that. Uh, If you'd prefer to text, it's 085-133-7711. And uh, the uh, webpage is uh, crimevictimshelpline.ie and info at crimevictimshelpline.ie if you'd like to email uh, the service. Michelle, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Michelle Puckhaber is uh, the Executive uh, Director of the Crime Victims Helpline. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the talks uh, between uh, the two government uh, ministers on cutting carbon emissions in agriculture are ongoing. Uh, they're said uh, to be close to agreement uh, somewhere, it seems, between 24 and 26%. Let's speak uh, to Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. Good morning again to you, Michael. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, This really is problematic for government, isn't it? Um, It seems as though they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Well, first of all, um, I think we need um, uh, an agreement. Um, But the funny thing about it is the Minister had told, Minister for Agriculture, because agriculture we'd be dealing with, um, I'm on the Agricultural Committee, um, he was sticking firm, or alleged to be sticking firm, at 22% um, and not starting. Mm. Um, now it emerges that he's gone to 24%, and Eamon Ryan is at 26 and it's nearly like a theatre that's yeah. been doing out in public. We're waiting to be told it'll be 25. Yeah, yeah you know, there's like split the difference. And, and the problem is, Michael, that while we know that 22 is achievable, it is... You know, and we know the different measures that were required for the 22. Um, we don't know, first of all, the measures that were required for 25. Second of all, it is my opinion that it's not achievable. And thirdly, the most damning part of all of this um, news has emerged over the last number of days, that Brazil is going to, between now and 2030, is going to increase its herd by more than the total animals we have in this country. Mm, but two wrongs don't make a right, do they? Well, whatever... Uh, well, I'll put it this way to you, Michael. Um, in my opinion, you don't uh, take the livelihoods away from people in one part of the world um, for others to do... Maybe, you know... Look at the, it's the, a fair the point, but you can't throw the your hands up. The world, Michael, yeah, I know, is I know. in Brazil. Yeah, I know, but you, you can't throw your hands up and say... The world will be kept taken down I know. by farmers in this country. Um, but, it's the great unknown. But can you not try to do both? I mean, rather than throwing your hands up and saying the planet is doomed because of what they're doing in Brazil, can you not say we'll do our bit and then try to change what's well, happening? first of all, hold on now, Michael. Farmers are always prepared to do their bit. Yeah. Farmers actually feed the people around the world. That's the first thing. So they're doing a fair bit. Second of all, farmers are always prepared to embrace new technology, new ways of doing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were prepared to go to the 22 because they would it would be achievable. But there is no point in promising something that you will do mm. if you're not fit to do it. And this is the big problem. Yes, after 2030, and I, I would watch technology, um, I would watch the different say, new technology systems, be it in additives that's coming. And I hear people talking about cattle that know damn all about them, saying, oh, how could you give them this? Well, first of all, in the dairy herds, cows come in in the morning and the evening, as everyone knows, and they get a certain amount of meal, so you can mix an additive in that. Second of all, for cattle that are out um, in, in most of the year, or for eight or nine months of the year, um, there's a thing called a trough that you can put a bit of stuff into. So, like, these are, you know, things that under new technology can be sorted. But realistically, and being very honest mm. to people, no more than transport and no more than energy, because I think we need to nail our colours to the mess. Mm. We, are, we have signed up to stuff that, in my opinion, we're not fit to do at the moment. In all towards, sectors. Tw- towards 2029, yeah. 2030, when we get offshore yeah. energy and all that, 
then you'll see figures changing. In all sectors? Uh, what's it, 50% in uh, transport, 80% or something in energy? Yeah, you, but like you in don't think any, of energy. You don't think in any line, of them are achievable, in other words? I don't think they're achievable, right, right. Being, honest, being honest with you, because if you look at offshore energy, and this mm. is going to be the great buzzword, and it's the most place you'll get consistent winds, to be quite frank about mm-hmm. it, um, between going through the planning, between putting them up, between doing the basic stuff, the, the ABC, like climbing the stairs, we will not be in a position, in my opinion, unless something drastic happens to have them up and running before 2030. Well, you might be right because people will be reading this morning uh, that there was 162 measures uh, that were to be implemented across April, May and June as part of the Climate Action Plan and less than half of them were implemented. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, Michael, we should go for what we can achieve. We should be honest. Honesty is the most thing that's required here. And if you cannot... I, I follow the agricultural sector... In, you know, inside out, upside down. I come from that background. And I know that at the moment there's a search gone on um, with the company of Mayo and with Chagas in relation to seaweed. The results are very good. That is to go to peer review and journal. That's going to be two years' time. Mm. There is a lot of new stuff on stream that's around the corner. But until that has proven itself, you cannot go saying you'll do something um, without having the basically the proof of it. And I am, and, I believe from twenty. And the idea is to feed the cows the seaweed, and it'll reduce uh, the carbon. Uh, well, to, to reduce the to reduce emissions. Yeah, or the, but it'll reduce methane. It'll reduce the methane it, it, when the, they belch. But yeah, here, Michael, right, but, yeah, let, yeah. let's let your let your listeners understand this. Mm. There's no magic bullets in all of this for the simple reason we brought in uh, Mitt Lohner, um, Professor Mitt Lohner from America to the Ag Commission last week. Mm. We brought in Professor Barry. Mm. And here's the stats from them. It's not, and there's, these are the scientists. That if you got rid of every, car, every animal, every, say, bullock and heifer and cow and all of that, if you got rid of every sheep or every, uh, in the world, if you got rid of every pig, and if you got rid of every goat, and if you got rid of every chicken, mm. you would the total in the agricultural sector that you bring down the temperature would be a third of point one of a degree. Mm, because two the methane, thirds, because the methane stays thirds, in the air. They told you two thirds it? of all methane mm. is created from landfill uh, gas wells. uncapped and likes of dumps and all of that Mm. and the EU has now decided to make those gas wells a green energy Mm. but but eventually but eventually over a period of time the methane uh, would uh, reduce uh, and uh, global warming uh, uh, alongside it because it takes time for the methane no 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 hold on in in the line of methane methane is a lifespan of 12 years Mm. and it turns into carbon and you, you take it down into the the, basically the grass that the cow mm. eats to put it very simple whereas unlike and, and the cow eats they eat about 11 tonne of grass 60% of it comes out from the cow and 40% of it goes into the meat and the person that eats that meat somewhere has part of the carbon in them and obviously people in their own right does it but the, but the reality of it is that the cow takes in 11 tonne of grass whereas if you let, let it out from a gas well there's nothing to take that back in again. That's mm. the difference. Mm. Uh, but we're talking about uh, these reductions over eight years. Are, are they not possible over that time frame? In my opinion, not. Because mm. um, where we will see, we will see um, things developing on the latter part of it. 
But on the targets that we have set, in my opinion, we're not ready to meet that. I do think from 2030 on, be it on offshore, in the line of energy, be it in transport, and indeed in agriculture with the new technologies that will be out there, that then you will see, you know, marvellous, um, basically, figures coming out because of the new technologies mm-hmm. that are there. But we, if we go down a road, uh, a non-wise road, of telling farmers, well, look at guys, you better get rid of some of them cows, which is a, a non-runner, in my opinion, and then someone in Brazil okay. starts going up to the size of our herd. Where are we going? Well, uh, it's, the one, it's the one air we breathe. It's the one world that we live in. Fair enough. And unless everyone makes the effort, and that means in the bigger scale, and to put it into perspective, um, we have 6 million cattle, there's 191 million in Brazil. Mm. So, Jesus, there's a fair difference in the amount of carbon that they're putting I'm, sure, I'm sure there is, but let me ask you the political question in Ireland, uh, which uh, will uh, come home to roost uh, for somebody, it seems, over the coming days, or else uh, it'll be deferred till September. But if uh, the minister comes back uh, with uh, victory of 24% or 25% or 26%. That's a, that's, that's a lot. But, but, but uh, it'll be sold to you as a victory. Uh, that, that's what I'm going to ask you. How how will farmers receive, if Charlie McConnell comes back trying to sell a victory, at, uh, it's three questions in one, if you like, 24, 25, 26, because it seems likely as though In it's my going opinion, it's looking, if I was a betting man, what they're going to do and the way they're portraying it in the media. First of all, they shouldn't be leaking what where they're at or whatever. Either you have a figure and you stand by it or you don't. And um, in my opinion, it's like a horse tail done out in public. Mm. And what they're going to do is say one was at 26 and one yeah. was at 25. And look at lads, we split it down the middle yeah, like, yeah. A, like a fair day in the town. Mm. But the only thing while we're splitting down the middle is the future of Irish farming. I don't think the farming organisations will accept it. And I don't think a lot of politicians will accept yeah, And you're going to be told to be reasonable uh, because there was a compromise. The Greens were stuck on 30. Uh, they got them down to 26 and 24 and then they found uh, a compromise between that. And that's only reasonable. So that's going to be the argument. It's going to be seen as a, a victory or sold oh, yeah, well, so, as so, 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 so a victory. In the media and everything will be twisted everywhere. The reality yeah. of it is this isn't something for um, PR exercises. This is about the future mm. of Irish agriculture and the future. But what will the response be, do you think, from the farming community to 20? 24% or 25 or 26 probably 25 Pardon what did you say Michael? What will the response from the farming community I don't be think I don't think it will be a good response is my honest opinion hmm. Will it cost uh, the government parties yes. seats? Yeah look at I see it in, in the rural areas there is um, and rightly or wrongly I'm not going to go I'm, I'm not going to be the judge and jury um, rightly or wrongly um, there is an awful um say vexation among um, rural people with some of the stuff that's coming out some of it said and some of it probably not said in fairness you know you, you'd have covered yourself about the the two cares and pitting one again the other mm. and it's not the Greens that's going to suffer being quite frank about it because the Greens don't exist in most of rural Ireland in the line of having seats in the doll. it will be the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil rural TDs mm. that will be the sufferers of this Yeah well the Greens could very well suffer if uh, they come down from 30 to 25. We saw Pauline O'Reilly the other day talk uh, about uh, having to uh, call a meeting of uh, the party if they were to come down from 30 and uh, I think uh, we all know uh, what that means when she's talking about looking at the support for the government. Well you look at where the most Greens are elected 
Um, I think bar one, it would be in more mm. urbanised mm. areas. Mm. Um, in the rural areas, you would have always had a strong representation uh, elected from be it Fianna Fáil or mm. Fine Gael. Um, that will come under ferocious. Because that, that's the potential opinion. to split the Green Party apart, which could be problematic for government, uh, and it could be problematic for government if it goes to 25%, and the response uh, that you're predicting from the farming community uh, turns out to be right. Well, look, the, the reality here um, that the Greens know damn well um, that if the, they kick the traces and decide to go uh, out of government, that um, there is another party at the moment riding high in the polls that will probably do fairly, very well. Um, and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil know that. So whatever cobbling up they're going to try and do, they're going to keep keep at that. Um, in my opinion, um, we should always put the people first and we should protect it. And bear in mind, this isn't about winners and losers. This is about the future of family farms. And this is the future of rural Ireland because we depend, like, every, you'll hear all the media shouting, the national media, oh, well, sure, agriculture is the highest emission. Yeah, it is, because Ireland is largely an agricultural country. There's 160 or 70,000 people involved in it. But I, and, I, and I will put this on the record to you today, and I hope that I will talk to you in a year's time. Aviation and the EPA report this year was at 4 million tonnes. Aviation next year, with the help of God, when 38 million people go through Dublin Airport, will be at approximately 19 million tonnes. And everyone will be jumping up and down that our emissions are gone up again. What are we going to do? Well, you can do damn all about that for the simple reason that's prosperity and that's people going here and there. You know, and like you have to face up to facts and reality. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. Independent TD for Roscommon Galway there. That's Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as uh, undoubtedly appeared at uh, the stage, anti-abortion protests are to become illegal if they're within 100 metres of any facility that provides abortion services under so-called safe access zones. Let's speak to Independent Senator Ronan Mullen, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Senator Mullen. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, would you imagine this will end up in the courts? Yeah, I mean, I'd be doubtful if this is constitutional. I can't think of any other situation where uh, people are prevented from expressing a point of view on anything, as long as, of course, that they do so within uh, public order rules and don't harass or, you know, engage in any behaviour that would already be criminal. It's interesting that the Gardaí said, as far back as 2019, that they didn't need any uh, legislation of this kind, that the laws were there. And a few months ago, there was a debate in the Shannon that there was legislation of this kind that's being pushed very hard for by Sinn Féin and other independents and obviously people who are in the, if you like, pro-choice, pro-abortion side of the argument. And um, one of the things that Stephen Donnelly simply said was, oh, I disagree with the Gardaí. So there's something going on here that's very unusual. Uh, It's not clear who the minister is listening. Well, it seems obvious to me that he's listening to voices that uh, he seems to want to cut dissent around abortion and prevent any visibility of of an alternative kind of point of view around that issue. That would be my honest view of this. Mm. Uh, I sometimes think that... um, some of the activists in this side are just, you know, they're terrified, terrified that somebody thinking of an abortion might, might, might meet somebody kind, you know, and end up changing their mind. You know, that just doesn't seem to be in there acceptable to them all. There was a press release last week, for example, from one of the organisations promoting abortion, and they used the word celebrate in their headline, celebrating the fact that, you know, X thousand abortions took place in the country last year. So, 
you know, there's an awful lot of people who voted for repeal who I think would be kind of horrified by some of the attitudes that are there uh, among some of those who are, you know, anxious to keep pushing, pushing for more unrestricted abortion and crushing, crushing any kind of mm. dissenting point of view. I would say, by the way, I'm not somebody that has ever taken part in a vigil or a witness of any kind. It's not, it's not my approach to things. But I, I did meet people in Leinster House a number of years ago, one woman in particular who changed her mind, a woman called Alina Dulguero, who, who, who changed her mind about having an abortion because she met somebody kind who was just silently, had some witnessing, just mm. saying, you know, there's another way we can offer support. And you, you believe changed her life. Well, you know, she's given a lot of her life ever since to, to, to talking about this issue and talking about her personal experience. Mm. You know, I think we've got to take people uh, as we find them, you know. Really? Well, I think that's the only decent way to deal with people. I mean, if you're, if you know, I mean, mm. you're suggesting, you know, I mean, who do you believe and who do you not believe? I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying that sounds like a tall tale. Uh, I can't imagine somebody coming uh, to uh, <laughs> a decision like that and then uh, meeting somebody on the street that they never knew before, and then changing their mind. That that sounds um, too hard for me to um, well, accept. Put it, to your, put it to your listeners, Michael. It doesn't seem hard to me at all. There's lots of women who are thinking about abortion. They're extremely in, in an extremely upset situation. Mm. They're extremely conflicted. Some have been pressurised by boyfriends and families. I mean, you know, the, the yeah. idea that, you know, one thing I think that everybody on the, in, the, in, in, in the debate agrees that this is a very, very difficult situation for women. And I never, ever, for example, and anybody I know in the pro-life movement has always said the people who should be blamed here are the abortionists and those who hustle women down the track of abortion, those who make money out of it. And, and, and there's a lot of money involved in this are those who have kind of an ideological blindness. There was a time, for example, when Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were talking about abortion. Well, I'd find find it easier easier, um, to accept uh, if a woman told me that um, they were going in to see their doctor with a sore throat uh, and they were very upset by people standing outside protesting against abortion and it had nothing to do with her or that she had some other problem with her, her pregnancy and she was very upset by that or if she was going in uh, to a hospital or uh, a, a, an abortion service provider somewhere else uh, and uh, met these people um, praying outside uh, that they were very upset by that. I'd find that much easier to understand and accept than hearing somebody claim that they were on their way in to get an abortion and they changed their mind because they met someone that they never knew before and said, oh, God, let me convince you of the error of your ways. That just seems unfathomable. Well, would, you be, would you be open to having that woman on your show? Because I can get in contact with her. No. She's involved in an organisation. No. She, she impressed any of the TDs and senators who met her that day when we, when we brought her into Leinster House. I mean, if you have an open mind, great, Michael, if you have a closed mind and you want to believe the worst of one side of the argument, I can't, I can't help that. But you're always very fair to me. But mm, I don't mm. think you're, I think you're being a bit blinkered on this one to be frank okay well it just seems like a very tall tale well that's a matter of opinion what mm. you think of a tall tale I don't regard yeah. myself as an amateur you know yeah. or, or, or somebody who uh, probably hadn't really made uh, the decision uh, who wasn't fully decided let's put it that way uh, when they met a stranger on have the street her, have her on and hear her story I, I, can't, yeah. I can't report I can only say there's you know there are people out there who, who do change their minds about mm. abortion. There are people out there who regret abortion. And what I'm worried about at the moment is that the, and I was about to tell you about, mm. you know, the time when the Clintons, they used to talk about abortion being safe, legal and rare. The government isn't even interested in talking about making abortion rare anymore. 
because it's supposed to be something that's celebrated, at least by some aspects of the pro-choice movement. We've come a long way in the country in terms of the in the wrong direction. When when you if, if those are the kind of that's because it's not working. That's to. because it's not working. Women are, are still forced to travel overseas to have uh, their pregnancies terminated. Well, the cases that are being described about, first of all, according to the figures, the government's own figures, there has been a jump of between 40 and 75% in the number of abortions that have taken place in the, on Irish women compared to when abortion was not legal in this country. So that's several thousand lives every year who have been dying who would not have died if abortion hadn't been legalised. There's never any discussion about that. There is no discussion, Michael, about the fact that there is no precautionary pain relief in the law for late-term abortion situations. There's been a, a study done, not by a pro-life side, in UCC that was published in the British Journal, which talked about medics in hospitals involved in abortions being disturbed at what they were seeing. You have the situation where in late-term abortions, an injection is put into the child's heart um, and, and without any precautionary pain relief, and yet we have laws that require pain relief for animals. So there's a lot of silencing in this debate about a lot of very unpleasant realities. And you are one of the fair journalists who like to me on from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you there's near shut down on the national debate and you would never think that a third of the people voted against all this. A third of the people believe that this is depriving a child of their basic right, which is the right to life. And anybody I've known... Well, more than two-thirds uh, voted in favour of... Agreed. And, and so let's have a debate where all being, voices are heard. But, at the but, moment they, but they were all heard down. and people heard all of that uh, no, during the, the debate the and they now. made their decision. No, I'm afraid there are still problems with the abortion legislation. As I said, there are people who would have voted for this who I think would be well, quite horrified. Well, there are, problems. There are problems because uh, women can't access uh, a service that should be available t- to them uh, through the public health service. Uh, and, and quite often that's because uh, GPs are concerned uh, that there would be protests outside of their clinics or hospitals are, are concerned. Uh, that uh, something like that. Only 10 out of the 19 HSE hospitals provide termination services. Would, would you, would, that's a particular narrative. Would you not agree that there are many GPs that don't want to be involved because they think it's unethical and unprofessional because they don't I want am, to be taking an innocent life? Would you accept that that's a, a problem for lots of doctors? I, I imagine that some GPs have a, an ethical problem with it, but I, I think that when... An ethical you look and at professional so, problem, Michael. I think that uh, I think that is an awful lot of GPs who don't want the bother of people coming into the with uh, sore thumbs uh, being greeted by people outside uh, with uh, crosses and white coffins and saying prayers and all well, that look, sort of stuff. I, I, I'm not a fan of crosses and white crosses and saying prayers. I try and say my few prayers in private and, 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 and talk about issues then of interest to people of all faiths and none outside. We do live in a democracy and, it is, and I don't know of any situation where, you know, it's not a healthy situation where we try and restrict people's freedom of expression. As I said, subject to limits and public order and, and, and prevent using the laws that are there against harassment and so on. But you are going down a very dangerous road if you seek to curb the freedom of legitimate freedom of expression of people whom you don't like. Because you see, we never have a problem with the freedom of expression mm. of people who we, who we like. The reason laws exist to protect freedom of expression is to protect the freedom of expression of people we don't like. But I would invite you to, to, to think about the fact uh, that, you know, there, there are tragic situations happening in this country. If you think of that child mm. who lost his life, a healthy, unborn child, 
who lost their life in Hollis Street Hospital because they were badly managed. There was a wrong diagnosis of severe disability. If we had a law that protected children with life-limiting conditions until their natural end, that would not have happened. Yet you didn't have the same discussion about the, the killing of that child in Hollis Street that you had about the tragedy of the late Savita Halapanavar, who died not because of our abortion laws, but because an infection was badly handled and, and people used that mm, case because, then to drive public well, emotion. Because, so I say there's a lot of unfairness is all I'm saying in this debate. And well, well, what that, what, what, what that infectious, uh, infection uh, and sepsis have uh, occurred uh, had, the, uh, had the, the, the pregnancy been terminated in Galway, uh, but when the medics wrongly decided that it would have been illegal to carry out that abortion, and if yeah, people, if, decided, if, if, and, people and if people if people are going to protest about these things, uh, isn't there a parliament uh, on um, uh, Kildare Street uh, at Leinster House uh, where people can uh, take their complaints? Well, that's a fair question, and I'd say there's this answer. You know, one of the reasons there's no real reality to this claim that there's a need for legislation, and I think it is coming from the extreme end of the pro-abortion movement that wants to crush all dissent, is that we don't actually have abortion clinics in Ireland. We have hospitals where abortions may or may not be happening at a given moment. We have GPs surgeries which may or may not be providing it. So as a result, you actually see very little public, public witnessing around uh, you know, offering alternatives to abortion, because it's, it's just not clear where it's going on. If you were in a place like America, for example, Mm. you would have a more visible, regular presence outside abortion clinics. And some of us would be of a kind, a small amount of it would be of a kind that I would not find acceptable. Fellas with guns. but, well, no, let's, no, 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 come on, we've seen people... in jail. But, but, well, but, yes, but we've seen doctors I, shot going into work. Yeah, agreed. And look at, look at if you're pro-life, you, you, mm. you believe in protecting life at all stages, okay, including of those who take life, okay? Mm. But, but I'm going back to people like Alina Dulguero, who I met, who okay. actually believe in offering people a positive alternative. And she herself, as she says, and have her on if you don't believe her, met somebody who respectfully, gently offered her a bit of hope. Okay. Well, everybody else just wanted to give see, her an abortion uh, and presumably make money out of it. This new legislation will stop that from happening in, in this country. Uh, I doubt if it will get through because I, I think it's unconstitutional. We'll I, I really don't okay. see this happening. I don't see any... There's no other area, right. I think, that I can think of where people are actually prevented okay. from respectfully gathering. Ronan, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Centre for Countering Disinformation is a unit within the National Security and Defence Council of Ukraine. It's headed by the Ukrainian President, Vladimir Zelensky. It's listed 72 public figures who they say have been promoting narratives consonant with Russian propaganda. One of those is independent MEP Claire Daly, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Claire Daly, and thank you uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I- I'm told you're accused of two narratives. One, that sanctions against Russia make innocent people suffer. And two, that the Ukrainian conflict is a proxy war between NATO and Russia. Am I, I right in thinking that you plead guilty as charged and you make no apologies for it? I, um, those two heinous crimes have actually been committed by me. Yeah, I did have the audacity to say that sanctions uh, impact on ordinary people and I do believe that the war in Ukraine is being fought as a proxy war between the US and NATO with Russia. Um, I, that's my opinion. I totally stand over it, sadly. 
actually, as time goes on, that opinion is being verified more and more because on the one hand, we see the impact of the sanctions now seriously beginning to bite in Europe, um, as the gas is turned down, people face an expensive and cold winter. Industry across Europe faces the prospect of hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs. And for all of that hardship, not a single Ukrainian life has been uh, saved. In actual fact, the Russians are earning more money than they ever did from their gas and oil. It is collective lunacy that we would pursue a policy of sanctions. And it is ordinary people who suffer because clearly the oligarchs and the heads of Russian society aren't losing any money in that regard. Uh, certainly on oil and energy, they may have had a few hits in other areas, but mm. that's a totally truthful statement. And the other thing about the, the war being continued by US and NATO, well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, the longer the war goes on, the more Ukrainians are dying. They're putting the losses at about a thousand soldiers a day now, which is horrific. And we see more and more people being forced out of their homes, more and more destruction. And the more the war goes on, the more and more of that that we will see. And the US and NATO are just given enough arms and they're given quite a lot. A lot of it's going in, but to keep it going. And I think that's reprehensible. And what about the sanctions? What about uh, against the sanctions on Russia? Are you concerned about ordinary Russian people? Well, I would be, yeah. I mean, there is, um, of course I am. I mean, I'm not anti-Russian. I mean, contrary to popular belief, I'm not pro-Russian either, but I don't have any axe to grind with ordinary Russians. Many ordinary Russians oppose the war uh, in the same way as I'd be critical of, of Zelensky. I'm not against ordinary Ukrainians. I'm critical of Putin. I'm not against ordinary Russians. So, yeah, ordinary people pay the price in terms of sanctions. Now, at the moment, um, ironically, it's actually European ordinary people who are going to pay more than ordinary Russians uh, in this, and that's the way it's shaping mm. up. So it's it's even it's even lunacy in that regard. But I mean, they're the crimes that I was put on this list for. But yeah. I mean, like the scary bit about this is like, what are they doing producing this list? I mean, if it was a list like that was sort of unearthing sort of people who've been found on the Kremlin's payroll, you could kind of understand it. But this is a mishmash of 72 people globally, including former president of Brazil, Lula, like, you know, Glenn Greenwald, the journalist, Tulsi Gabbard, like the, the U.S. congresswoman who fought for the U.S. Um, uh, defense forces like seriously you know? okay but on the and, face uh, of things they supposed to be Russian propaganda like this is yeah. utterly crazy uh, it's uh, actually the authoritarianism which we would roundly and rightly give out about Russia for that's what this is uh, like, uh, on the face of things uh, and in the current circumstances in the current climate uh, they seem like very serious allegations because of who is making them uh, because uh, I suppose the implication from uh, the Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky is that you're a Russian sympathiser well, I mean, I, I, like, I suppose it is, there is a sinister element to it. I think you're right in that nobody has said what is the consequences of being on this list and what is the penalty? Does it mean that you're going to be denied access into Ukraine? Uh, does it mean, is it a list being put out there for all of those people? And we know that arms and weapons have gone in totally unaccounted for into Ukraine by the bucketful. Is this a sort of a, a hit list being put out there that these people are, are fair game or whatever? That's quite sinister. But the bottom line is, is that this is not based on any um, unearthing of any link between any of the people on the list and the Russian authorities or anything like that. It's based on the opinions of a mishmash of people. And the only thing that unites the people on the list, because some of them are people who I'd be absolutely politically 
uh, opposed to is that we've been critical of the UN and uh, the US and NATO position in terms of Ukraine. That's the only unifying thing. And that's an opinion. I mean, we talk about this war being fought between democracy and authoritarianism. I mean, shutting down people because of their opinion is authoritarianism. Okay, but what the Zelensky has done now comes on the back of internal suppression. So the Zelensky government has now shut down all opposing uh, opposition parties, has shut down independent media, has rounded up many of its own officials and accused them of collaboration with Russia. And now they've designed this unscientific Russian uh, sympathizer list or whatever. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's my opinion. It's an opinion which shared by loads of people in Ireland. It's an opinion which shared by the Pope, for example, who's argued the exact same position as me. And that's what democracy is, the right to express your opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. How, how do you claim it's a, a proxy war between the US or the US and NATO, NATO uh, and Russia uh, when NATO has rejected every request to involve itself directly in uh, the war against Russia? But it's very clear that the NATO forces, and we've had them before us in the European Parliament repeatedly, and they've been very open, as have the US. They're not going to put boots on the ground because that would lead to a nuclear war in uh, on the continent of Europe but they are piling in enough hardware enough expertise military personnel and so on on the ground to keep it going um, and that is disgusting as far as I'm concerned because what they're doing is they're playing with the people of Ukraine they're using them as cannon fodder and they're quite happy for them to sacrifice themselves for as long as it takes down to the last Ukrainian as long as they can keep the war going. And you only have to look at the billions that have gone in to Ukraine. They haven't actually gone into Ukraine. The billions that come from the U.S., most of those billions have gone into U.S. arms companies. They've stayed in the U.S. The arms have gone to Ukraine. The Ukrainians have died, and the U.S. shareholders are sitting there laughing all the way to the bank, while the U.S. people are facing massive inflation and I'm sure would prefer their money to be spent on something else. So, yes, this war is penalising ordinary people everywhere. And um, it's internationally, we see now the implications in food security and that. It's in everybody's interest to end it. But like, sure, even today, the US Secretary has been on kind of saying, no, no, we want this war to continue. We want Russia to be punished. But like, who's paying the price of that? Ordinary people everywhere. It's it's appalling. And we've argued now Mm -hmm. and since the beginning for peace and dialogue and an end to the war. And that will happen sometime, but it really needs to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, And that's why Claire Daly is on this list. Good to talk to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660 4237. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.